This episode of History Replays today, the Richmond History Podcast, is brought to you by Frame Nation. Frame Nation is your one stop for any kind of amazing framing, displaying needs you may have. Go down to Frame Nation. They're in the Shaco Design District. They're right off 15th Street, uh, right there, you know, very short distance from the Main Street Station, right on 15th. Go check them out. They have all kinds of amazing, you know, museum quality stuff. If you want to get top notch, um, if you're looking for something a little more affordable, they can help you out. Make sure whatever they're, you know, you're trying to display, you know, you're not going to overshadow it. You know, go down to Frame Nation, bring what you're trying to display, whether it's, you know, fine art, which they actually have a gallery there where they can sell you some art if they, if you want to do that, um, or, you know, graduation photos, um, you know, child photos. If you have a graduation plaque, you're trying to, whatever it is. Let them know. They'll make sure that it complements your piece, not overshadows it. Go down to Frame Nation. Check them out. They're at uh, framenation.net on the internet. You can also just give them a call. Go ahead and you follow them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Wherever you follow people, do it. Follow Frame Nation. I do. Frame Nation. This is History Replays Today, the Richmond History Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you're having a fantastic day. On the show, I have Ralph White, who is uh, the retired manager of the James River Park Service System. Uh, it was about a year and a half ago he retired. Uh, many feel like uh, Ralph White is really responsible for what the park system is today. Uh, he didn't actually want to say that, but a lot of people did say that. Uh, and if you don't spend much time down by the river and in the James River Park system, you should. I sat down with Ralph uh, on his porch um, to record this conversation, which was really excellent. You'll hear, you know, he lives in an area where, you know, not far from, you know, Pony Pasture, where there are tons of, tons of birds in the background. Um, the, the James River Park system is an amazing, amazing place, um, which, you know, when we get into the conversation, you'll really see why I'm saying that. But, you know, we don't just talk about the history of the park system. Um, we actually talk about a little of his history and really the history of the James itself. I didn't get to near as much stuff as I'd want to talk about on this podcast. Um, I had a ton of questions that I wanted to ask him, but I didn't get anywhere near it. So I do need to talk to him again soon. But uh, this is all the time that I had for him today. And, and I'm going to have him on, a, on the show again sometime very soon. Uh, I do also want to say this is the first episode I'm, you know, I'm going into my you know first episode of new content that's starting the second full year of History Replays today. And I'm trying to start a new thing. This is the first episode where I've actually asked on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr for uh, questions that you might ask, uh, ask the guests. Uh, good news, I did get a, a number of questions on all three of those platforms. Bad news. The day before I talked to Ralph, I actually dropped my phone in some water. Um, so when I was talking to him, my phone was actually in rice. So I actually had no cell phone reception. Um, we, we actually talked about, he tried to get his call, you know, figure out what his password was, uh, you know, to his Wi-Fi. It didn't work out. But I did remember a couple questions um, that people had sent in. But I didn't get to near as many that I, that what I would want to. 
So hopefully in future episodes, you know, if you want to ask a question uh, of the guests that I might have, uh, definitely like, you know, uh, Facebook page, History Replays Today, Tumblr, History Replays Today, or on Twitter, at History Replays. Um, that's History Replays. And you can look for your opportunity to ask a question, contribute to, to a future show. Um, you can also suggest a guest there. Let me know what you think about the podcast. Um, you can also just email me. Jeff Major at History Replays Today dot org. That's J E F F M A J E R at History Replays Today dot org. Uh, the the questions that I did get to, like I said, they were just straight from memory. Um, but before I get to the conversation with Ralph, I am going to say that you should go down to River City Segs. It's the premier Segway tour company in Richmond. They're a sponsor of this program. Go check them out. The only Segway-specific training area in Virginia. Uh, you know, History Tours, which if you're listening to this, you probably are interested in the history of Richmond and, and the United States and the world, I'm assuming. But we also do public art tours, scavenger hunt tours, which we call the River City Challenge, which is kind of like a, you know the Amazing Race or something like that. Go check that out. River City Segs. It, you can find them on Facebook. You can find them on Pinterest. You can find them at 804segs on Twitter, on Instagram, River City Segs as well. Um, you can find out there about special tours, any kind of discounts that will be coming up as well. Um, but let's go ahead and get to this conversation with Ralph. Uh, Ralph was not from RVA. And so he kind of started out talking a little bit about how he came to, to live in Richmond, uh, you know, with his such such a huge impact. Um, he did have a massive impact on, on the city. Again, a lot of people really credit him with, with what the James River Park system is today. And, um, you know, really how he began to acquire his love for the James River. I grew up outside the United States. Uh, I was born in uh, New York City. I left the U.S. about uh, age 11 or 12 went to Southeast Asia, where my dad was uh, a foreign service officer. He made movies. And uh, because there was no school that taught in English where I lived, uh, I then went to school in the Philippines, sort of commuted, okay. um, and graduated from high school in uh, uh, the northern part of Luzon province in a, from a school called Brent. Um, and I came back to the U.S., and I went to college in Connecticut and graduated, went back to Southeast Asia because I thought I had developed a mongoloid fold in my eye and uh, I'd been studying Mandarin and Thai and I thought I was going to be an Asia expert. Um, came back to the U.S. after that, traveled all around, worked for National Park Service where uh, I served in North Dakota and Washington, D.C. and Arizona, Utah, and was on my way uh, to do a summer gig, uh, excuse me, a winter gig. My park service work was seasonal, so I would alternate back and forth different jobs. I was on my way from Arizona to go to uh, John Pennycamp Park in Florida when I stopped by to see a girl here in Richmond. That was in 78, and Although the girl passed on and left, she lives in California, 
I stayed. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been here since then. Um, actually, I was hired by the city in 1980. Uh, and so Richmond is one, my home, two, where I have spent more of my life than any place else, and three, a place that uh, I have come to love dearly. There are a lot of stories in America and Southeast Asia, I'm sure, as well, that pivot on a girl. Isn't that so? <laughs> uh, don't we, as men, get led around that way? Yeah. Um, it, you look at the power structure of various cities and states and counties and nations, they tend to be male. But if you look at where the real power structure lies, it's in the female. That's right. Um, and uh, everybody in Thailand will tell you that. In the United States, we still have a sense of bravado that makes us think that men are in charge. Um, I think women play up to our egos that way. That's true. And I guess the uh, best way to be a leader is to make everyone else feel like they're leading, right? And I think women have that. They think, oh yeah, you're in charge. Don't Ab worry. <laughs> you are absolutely right. Uh, yeah. And that is the best kind of leadership um, because it diffuses any sense of competition. Sure, absolutely. Um, if, you, if you want to have something happen, Make sure it's the other person's idea. The other person takes your idea and feels it's their own. Absolutely. Um, so, in 1980, what is the uh, what is the park system like? All right. Um, Are you did you start working for it then or no? Uh, I uh, I came here in '78. Went back to National Park Service in '79, and uh, was hired in 1980, January of 1980. In the previous uh, winter, I had worked here, uh, 78, 79, as uh, a seasonal worker in the uh, James River Park, doing labor work. I made trails and uh, picked up litter. But the guy who hired me, uh, John Feinfeld, I believe that was his name, um, felt that I should be teaching. And so I segued over to take people out to pick up snakes and look at the beautiful uh, things in the river. They were fairly successful programs. The director of Rec and Parks didn't like that because he said, um, I remember he was from South Africa and he had a strong accent. He said, you have been hired to do maintenance work, not to be teaching work, so you will do maintenance work. And I said, okay, chief. But he changed his mind when there was a big flood and John Feinfeld wasn't there to help uh, get something secured in the river. And so there was the director in the water up to his armpits and I jumped into the water and the two of us did the things that needed to be done. And now he changed his mind about me. Uh, and when I was in National Park Service, he called me up and said, you know what, we'd like you to apply for a new job, which is park naturalist. And I did, and I was hired. I must say that I also had been negotiating um, with the department to get that position created. In truth, I had somebody in mind, not me. <laughs> Uh, it was a woman, Emily Kimball, who went on to, she was hired, by the way, uh, for a short period of time. She did not work out, 
did not get along with this uh, Mr. Reinhold, and she went to work for Chesterfield and was uh, transformative for them. She set up their uh, nature movie system, she set up their program of outdoor recreation. Uh, Emily Kimball, powerful, powerful force uh, in nature education and uh, outdoor recreation in the Richmond area. Mm -hmm. But since she didn't want to and didn't like working for Richmond, um, I was a good second choice. And is this a, I mean, because the river's still pretty dirty at that point, right? Yeah. And um, here's the, what's interesting about the river. Um, it was the fifth filthiest river in the United States in the 1950s and early 60s. Okay. Um, it had so many um, illnesses associated with it that during the height of Jim Crow, when white prejudice and uh, uh, black isolation were at their maximum, there was nonetheless tight cooperation between the fathers of, of the black and white communities, the political leaders, at least in one area, and it was how to keep the boys out of the river because they were getting these awful skin diseases, eye diseases, gastrointestinal, urogenital, I mean, just everything. Um, it was so bad that in the 1950s, I know, and I believe it was throughout the 60s, if you were a public utilities worker, you had to have a shot card, which was the same yellow card that I would had to have when I went to, as a little boy, into the backwaters of India and uh, Pakistan and, and parts of Thailand and Laos and Cambodia. Wow. You know, you had to be third world certified and, and appropriately stuck with, with uh, immunizations. So that was the nadir. We had but what, what's making it that dirty? Just, just industry? Or is there, I mean, what? It was a mindset that the purpose of rivers was to get rid of the things you didn't want. So yes, it was industrial waste, but it was also human waste. And although people realized, political people realized that you could do something about it, there was a consideration against it, and it's this. If I invest in local sewage treatment, have to raise taxes because we've got to pay for the bond to underwrite the cost. And if I do that, our taxes are higher than the next town and all of our business will go to the other town. Love to help you. It's a terrible problem. We can't do anything about it. This is known as the proverbial race to the bottom. And that's where we were. Richmond uh, diverted a great deal of the river at that time uh, using dams downtown. Uh, to go into industry. It dumped all its industrial waste into the river. It dumped all of its human waste. So it was god-awful. So we, it wouldn't even have been just a Richmond problem, right? Because, I mean, it was all the other, everything upriver is also, I mean, coming down to us. <laughs> uh, uh, you're right, Jeff, but it's also nationwide. This yeah. was an awful thing. Okay. And we had the Clean Water Act arguably the most important law to happen in the second half of the 20th century, with the most important law 
in the first half of the second uh, the 20th century being Social Security. Social Security agree, uh, uh, assured that no old people would starve to death, would die of freezing in their own houses, which did happen. In the second half of the 20th century, it was fishable, swimmable waters guaranteed by the government. You had no excuse. The law said you had to clean it up, and the feds would help you. I think in the beginning it was two to one. So you couldn't claim poverty, and the standards were the same for everybody. And it changed everything. I believe that's 68. And uh, in 1970, the uh, idea of the James River Park began. Um, 1972, uh, the park opened. Um, and so, that was so wait, so that's interesting. I'm sorry, I keep cutting you off, but that's... What was the park before? I mean, what was the river before that? I mean, was there... Where did land come from? It's all private. And they just bought all this... The city just bought this land, or stole they, it, or... Oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if the city had thought to do that? <laughs> no. It was done in the beginning by a, a group of concerned citizens who saw the future. And the two primary forces were Jack Keith and Joe Schaefer. They went quietly around purchasing the islands in the river that were available for the cost of unpaid taxes. And they did it, and they offered that to the city. The state bought some land through um, a water conservation uh, program, land, land and conservation. Um, and the feds gave a little bit of money, and the city gave a very little bit of money. And that secured the property. But when the land was first acquired and offered to the city, the chief of parks, uh, the director of recreation and parks, when asked to sign on the line, was reputed to have said, no. Who the hell wants a bunch of weeds and snakes? <laughs> and he was reminded by the city manager that he didn't make those decisions, <laughs> and that if he didn't want to sign, somebody else could sign in his place and he could find another job. So he most definitely did sign, right. but it was not with this overwhelming sense of pride. Uh, there was no sense of looking to the future. Um, but that was done by citizens. Yeah. And that idea of the park in the minds of citizens, and by the way, there were, uh, there were state and federal officials who saw the value. Um, way back in the 1960s, there was a National Park Service uh, program called Mission 66 Parks for the People, uh, a study of places around the, wor around the United States that would be appropriate places to set up parks and it was self-serving so that they could take some of the pressure off the national parks that were being overwhelmed even then wow. and all the more so today so land was identified people were talking there was a buzz it was not within the city of richmond's uh, uh, leadership but in others and and private citizens drove the effort and the land was acquired the park began 
And when opened in 1972, the, the two towers at, at 42nd Street, 22nd Street, um, provided access, and the park began, but with very mixed uh, planning. The park headquarters is located in a lovely setting along the edge of the river. However, the public can't get to it by car. So it never got very much use. The park headquarters was supposed to be comprised of two buildings, a, a public contact area um, and a maintenance headquarters, mm -hmm. but they uh, merged the two together. And whenever you try to get too many things uh, out of one th thing, you combine too much, it's neither fish nor fowl. And that has been the, the problem ever since. It's not a, an adequate maintenance center, uh, and because of its location, it's not the ideal visitor center. And and that's the that's the nature center over, yes. over behind uh, at Reedy Creek. Yes, it is. Right. Okay. So the I just went. Like I think we talked about. I had no idea it existed. I've been to Reedy Creek a number of times. I had no idea that little building was there. And that was built in the seventies. Yes, and uh, that was opened in seventy four. Uh, it is arguably one of the loveliest uh, new buildings in city ownership, right along the edge of the water with a beautiful glass window. Um, and later on, we've had floodlights at, at night. And oh, it's got a walkway on the outside, absolutely stunning. The last building to be permitted to be built in the active floodway in the state. So it is illegal, basically. <laughs> it came in uh, under the wire, but after, after the fact, it was grandfathered. Um, so even in that... Has it been that, threatened? Because we've definitely had plenty of floods since the 70s. You bet. Yeah. <laughs> and what they did uh, was to build it on stilts. This was very reminiscent of the architecture that I remember from Thailand and the Philippines. Um, when the water comes, it just washes underneath the building. You open up the garage doors on the western side, it flushes underneath, comes out the garage doors on the eastern side. Right. Uh, and the structure is supported on very strong, uh, they're not just columns, they're uh, walls that run parallel to the river flow of concrete. Anyway, you can't do that now and get a loan certified by the government. Uh, if you're a very rich person, I suppose you could do it out of pocket. But do whatever you want if you're rich enough. <laughs> but no government building would ever be built like that again. Too bad, in a sense, but there it is. Right. You have this, again, um, I think, um, lack of understanding of what the park is really all about, which is how to use the active floodway. A series of bridges were put in, a ferry. Guess what happened? They, they blew out. Yeah. The incident that I mentioned uh, with uh, Director Reinhold, uh, Reiner was that um, the ferry boat uh, got yeah. logs jammed against it and um, was basically sunk. And it took, you know, it had to be hauled out with. Uh, a crane every time there was a flood. So I the only just saw that thing because you're talking about like it was 
It basically looked like it was going to Belle Isle. No. Or where where was that? I just saw a picture of it just recently. Now there was a ferry to Belle Isle as well. Okay. No, I'm talking about the one that was opposite about 25th Street that goes from Sawmill Island out uh, to the three goat islands. And it was a lovely, lovely concept. Perfect for a lake. Yeah. But anyone who understood the dynamics of river ecology, the river flow, the hydrology, would know that you can't do this. It's far too maintenance intensive. Um, because it was in an urban area, it was subject to vandalism, so they kept making it stronger and stronger, which made it heavier, which meant you had to have bigger equipment to get it out. And we reached the ridiculous stage in which um, it took three days to get a crane, but we only got two days notice on floods. <laughs> you know, it's just craziness. And in 1980, when I was hired, the Reagan Revolution uh, took place. And what Ronald Reagan did between January of 1980 and July 1st um, was set up an entirely new relationship between the federal government and the states. He eliminated all of the direct grants to the different programs, consolidated the money, gave less of it, and uh, these block grants were to be divided by state governments in any way they thought uh, appropriate. This meant that recreation and parks was absolutely the lowest uh, priority. And it played out in the city of Richmond with a great restructuring of the department. Uh, I've forgotten the uh, percent of jobs that were lost, but everybody bumped. So people at high levels had to go down and take a lower level job and a lower pay. Uh, and then the lowest people were just out. In that setting, you would think, last hired, I'd be first fired. This took place in the summer of 1980. But in the entire city of Richmond, there was not one person who wanted my job. <laughs> That's job security, have, have the worst job. <laughs> that was the perception, that it was working along. Remember, people remembered it as being a polluted area, but because of the Clean Water Act, um, the sewer lines had been put in, the basic sewer lines, and the sewage treatment plant uh, upgraded, uh, such that water conditions really improved. But it's the story of the lady in red, right? She may have been a hooker and now found God and stopped that profession. But is she your first choice as a babysitter? Right. You know, you can't help the prejudice. And that was the case. We were in that condition. I, as someone who loves nature, uh, felt that this was a great opportunity. Here was a resource that was not under, not only underutilized, but was misunderstood and biased against by leaders, but not by the general citizenry. Huh. And one of the things that I found in particular is that anyone who was not a native of Richmond, someone who moved here from Chicago or New York or D.C. 
someone who even came from the counties and were here, someone in the universities, someone in the private schools, someone in some of the new businesses, they saw the river not as this place that used to be so polluted, but instead as this wonderful unexplored resource. They felt the magic of the river and it was my feeling, and still is, that that's how you transform a society, is you bring people into the magical areas that you have and you let them explore it. And this has to do with historical sites, it has to do with environmental sites, it has to do with cultural sites. So, basically that's what I did. When I was hired in January, I was part of a crew of 14. Right. On July 1st, I was a crew of one. Wow. Thirteen people lost their jobs. But, and so these, you're now working in a place, I guess at that point, I mean, is there a trail? I mean, you mentioned 42nd Street and then the other, the, um, the other bridge that is, um, you know, this, there's some sort of access, right? But if once you get over that bridge and you're down there, I mean, you're just in the woods? No. There were two trails. They ran parallel. Uh, one ran along the quote-unquote river, and the other ran along the ancestral banks of the James below Riverside Drive. Okay. Now, the one that ran between uh, below Riverside Drive, between 22nd and 42nd Street, passed by an old spring called the Buttermilk Spring, because that spring was where wagons used to unload uh, milk, particularly uh, buttermilk, because it wasn't very cold spring, uh, so it wouldn't hold fresh milk, but buttermilk was there. And so they'd put vast quantities in their churns, and when they got enough to fill a wagon or two, the, they'd put it into the wagon and then drive across the toll bridge to uh, and sell in the market downtown. Uh, so it became the buttermilk trail. Right. And the buttermilk trail at that point ran, as I say, 22nd to 42nd. Uh, since that time, it's been extended up to the, uh, to the Boulevard Bridge. Mm -hmm. Well, that was one trail, and then the other was the maintenance road, which also served as a trail, and that ran along the river's edge. What's interesting about that is it was only a year or so ago that we found that's not the river. That is the remnant of the canal system, the Manchester Canal, that was supposed to be the competitor to the Kanawha Canal, uh, which is located on the north side of the river. The Manchester Canal lost out, right. but it was built in parts. And if you go along the edge of the river, opposite the visitor center, for example, or if you cross the rocks at the 42nd Street entrance, you'll notice that the river quote-unquote, that channel, has rocks that are strangely flat. Because if you go out further, the rocks all have this yeah. normal turtleback uh, rounded quality. But right near the shoreline, man, they're flat as a hat. That's because they were all trimmed and flattened by slaves uh, in the building of the footprint of that canal, which, by the way, left a footprint that went as far as what we now know as Pony Pasture Rapids. Wow. Wow is the word. 
Isn't that interesting how history continues to be uh, revealed? And you see it in the shape of what looks like just a natural setting. Sure. I think that's something that um, that I, you know, I think is incredibly interesting. And I try and, you know, through this and doing, you know, Segway tours and trolley tours and, you know, different things, is that the history is, you know, just as alive as the trees in the parks. I mean, this stuff is constantly changing. We're constantly learning new stuff about it. Um, you know, as people do new research or turn to their left sometimes. Sometimes it's as simple as that, right? You've walked forward forever and you turn to your left and you're like, oh, wait, this is right, you know, it's there. You know, these are flat rocks, not, you know, and it's that easy sometimes, right? That is what makes living uh, uh, in Richmond or in, in any city that's dynamic um, so interesting and involving is when you begin to ask the question, why the hell does that look that way? Right. Why is that big round rock there and no place else? Or in this case, why are the rocks flat? Why are there bricks? These aren't natural cliffs. My God, these are old quarry sites. Sure. You know, why is the ground all of a sudden flat in this area? Oh, that's the old wagon road. And so on and so forth. Um, you find new stuff all the time. And then as you do some historical research, you find interesting things related to stuff that maybe hasn't left a, a distinct material footprint, but perhaps a behavioral one. Um, look at um, oh, the sturgeon mm -hmm, yeah. are now returning. Sure. The sturgeon used to be used in rites of manhood by 15 and 16 year old boys to prove to the honored elders that they were now adults. And they would do so by jumping on the backs of these big, gravid, pregnant females that are coming into the shallows to lay their eggs in the spring, but as we know in Richmond now, also in the fall. And a matter of fact, uh, it's a, 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 an oddity. I believe the James River is the only population that has a fall spawn. Huh. Anyway, the boys would come out and ride on the backs of the sturgeon. And if they had a good ride, then they were uh, accepted. And by the way, they had a social life and they could begin uh, to maybe seek out uh, a bride. Sure. Um, and, or prepare that. Um, if they had a lousy ride, then the girls would do the ultimate uh, humiliating action. They would giggle. And if a girl giggled at you because you had a lousy ride, you had no sex life, no social life, no nothing for the next year till you could prove yourself again. Right. So, and, and that's the natives we're talking about, right? Native, yeah. These are native mm -hmm. boys who did yeah. this. Um, there's some other interesting things in terms of behavior, human behavior, and fish. Isn't it interesting to go down along the river in the month of April, starting late March, all of April, most of May, and see the agglomeration of different ethnic types. If you go to Ancaro's Landing, which is the site of the Manchester slave docks, you can see people from South America, Central America, you know, um, uh, uh, Panama, uh, Guatemala, El Salvador, Costa Rica, and Mexico, uh, next to people from Bosnia, Serbia, Croatia, Russia, next to people um, 
God, from New York, you know. It's all of these strange people with their different uh, accents, uh, Vietnam, Cambodian, Thai, all doing one thing, sharing the bounty of the river. In this case, it's the spawning fish, the white perch in particular, that they come to harvest. This goes all the way back to Native American times because before the white people arrived from Europe, Native people would stop their annual warfare, which went on for 10, 10 and a half months a year. They'd go out and, and uh, what's called counting coup, you slap somebody or hit them with a hatchet, you steal women and children, you get yourself an extra wife this way. Um, all warfare stopped so that everybody could go fishing. And the reason is, food was not as quite as abundant. You had to prepare. Uh, there was enough, but you had to take advantage of it when it was there. So everybody stopped warfare. Right. And everybody gets along fine today. One of my finest memories, um, a few years ago, I drove down with a truck and was getting litter. And blocking my way was a ring of children squealing and yelling, uh, in a, running in a circle. I'm reminded of an Indian story. Uh, oh, who was the British writer about Indian folklore? Um, Rudyard Kipling. And he talked about uh, the tiger that ran in a circle and turned into butter. Well, these little kids were squealing and yelling and running faster and faster and faster and faster. And I thought, wow, is they, you know, they were just a blur. And then I said, oh, what's interesting? I don't hear any English. Wait a minute, that's a Spanish word. Okay, so these are all, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's a Slavic word. That's, that's a kind of a Russian sounding. Wait a minute. That's Vietnamese. I know that's Vietnamese. That's a Lao word. That's just like Thai. So all of these kids squealing and laughing and relating all in different languages sharing the same joy in running in a circle that their parents had catching fish right and none of them were really they would speak now and then in broken english to one another but the whole idea was that communication was on a uh, a joyous level because everyone was happy doing what they were doing this was the energy of mother nature expanding out into the energy of society. Sure. And um, we are fortunate to have managed our resources so that it serves this purpose and, uh, and draws this kind of use. We haven't walled it off. What's different about Richmond? I hope I'm not too dogmatic here. I would, I get it. <laughs> get into it. What's different about Richmond? You go to Grand Rapids, Michigan, and it's all concrete. Right. Walls and, and concrete dams and uh, spillways and factories. And we have largely obliterated the, the factory aspects and allowed Mother Nature to heal. And we have this yeah. natural aspect um, so uh, dichotomous from the urban environment of the of the uh, Tall apartment buildings and, and businesses. So we have an urban setting and a rural setting 
coming right, right up against one another. And, and it's great thing because you're always anywhere in Richmond, you're always a short walk from a park. Yes. And you know, a lot of them are manicured in all kinds of you know fancy ways. You know, I mean, to to the point of Maymont, where you know it's a very you know gilded age, high quality. You know, the grasses. But you can go to the parks and really sit there and just really think, like, you know, other than my watch and the calendar, I mean, natives could run out of the woods right now. You know, Captain Christopher Newport could come up the river, right? I mean, this is what this you know, before all these buildings and everything were here. I mean, it's a pretty amazing thing, but. Um, Jeff, you've hit on something. The beauty of the James River Park system, as opposed to, you know, there are many good parks in the city of Richmond. Bryan Park, Bird Park, Marsdale Park, uh, and so on. Libby Hill Park, Chimborazo Park. But they are, as you have said, largely manicured in the old estate idea. Um, and that meets a certain, almost a country club for the common man concept. But the natural area parks along the river are an entirely different understanding. Uh, they are quintessentially the American idea of parks, uh, which began with Yellowstone and Yosemite, the grand uh, uh, vistas of nature that Europe didn't have. Our manicured parks are versions of aristocratic uh, uh, properties. They are an extension of the plantation mentality. The natural area parks are a way for the common man to escape common life and go into uh, a different world. It is theater. Right. And if you look at the natural quality of the park, you'll see that it's confined to an area that is really artificially narrow. It's quite long, you know, the rapids are seven miles long, and although the park system is not continuous, it appears to be, right. because largely the areas that aren't park have the same vegetation and are managed in the same way. We don't have people's houses down along the edge, uh, by and large, and so you have this va vast sense of entering nature. But it is managed artificially, and it is like theater. You suspend the sense of reality in order to have an emotional response. Theater makes you laugh, makes you cry, and you pay good money for that because you want to feel it. Right. And the park along the river does the same thing. Try this experience. I'm going to give you three. Walk in in the morning at the 42nd Street entrance. You park your car on a Saturday morning, you walk down the cobblestone steps, and all of a sudden the trees are above your head. You're going through a corridor. You descend in time and space. You, As you descend down, um, the parking lot and the cars and the houses are gone. You are in the woods. You are, at this point, almost like a bird flying in the under uh, story of the forest. You cross over the railroad tracks and you look out and unless you see a train, what you see is a band of steel that, are, that uh, glints off into the distance. This could be 1920, it could be 1820. Right. You know, what year is this? 
you then descend a concrete stairway and come to the channel, which we now know as the uh, footprint of the old Manchester Canal, but which really looks like a channel of the river, and you're surrounded by tall riverine forests, and you can't tell what year it is. Is this now 1720? Is it 1620? You hop on the rocks, you go through um, wild plants, flowers, shrubs that native plants used. There are pawpaws mm -hmm. that native girls used to collect in uh, late August uh, as a food source for uh, their tribes, which people now do who are not natives. Right. You can go and have this experience. Um, as you wade with your children from island to island, you'll see the little footprints of raccoons and muskrats. Um, if you're lucky, the footprints of otters, the big footprints of great blue herons. You're inside the capital city of Virginia. Right. What a contrast. You have left the reality of the 21st century and you've now entered a timeless period of uh, early Americana. You can do that at the 42nd Street entrance um, and you can, and I've done this, you can get lost on some of the channels. Go in at the 22nd Street entrance, go into the channels between the islands and there are a series of five lines of islands kind of strung like hot dogs. You can be so totally lost, your heart will jump you say, you know, I'll never get out of here. Right. I have no idea where I am. Except when your heartbeat slows down again and you figure it out, you say, wait a minute. The river is coming from this point going to that point. So I know east and west. That means that land has to be to my left, right. which is south. And now all I need to do is find a channel that cuts between the islands. And lo and behold, if you walk long enough, you will come to the Brandywine Cut that takes you out to the Reedy Creek headquarters. Right. But it can be frightening to be so lost and yet comforting to know in the middle of the city that you will actually not need rescue. Yeah. Well, isn't this part of theater again, having an excitement? Sure. Don't you go to a, a, a movie or a theater to be afraid sometimes in a, in a suspense thing? Absolutely. So whether it is the joy of finding little things um, that makes a sweet movie or a sweet play, um, of, of finding the beautiful flower and the butterflies flitting between the shadows uh, and lights over a river channel, or whether it's being lost in the wilderness, this theatrical experience is what the park provides. Right. Here's something that you can do now as a you have uh, uh, a young child, yes, um, and perhaps might like to have one more. You want a romantic setting in the month <laughs> of well, it can be yeah, in the month of July now. Go to the Huguenot Flatwater section of the park. That's the westernmost section. Put in with a canoe or a kayak at sunset on the day before the full moon. Paddle into the sunset in these raspberry and tangerine colors 
um, pull out on a sandbar, have with you, my wife and I like to bring a little hibachi, tiny thing, six inches or eight inches, cook something or, or bring a sandwich and have the drink. And just relish the moment as time, uh, as the light changes. I, I always bring a little citronella candle. And then when the sun has totally uh, left the sky and everything has darkened, the moon is up. You now pile everything into your canoe or kayaks, put on your life jacket, kick the boat into the water, and float next to it. Now, with the moonlight in your eyes, the world is now only in shades of gray, of black and white and shades in between. And the water glitters and when you close your eyes, you cannot tell when they are in the water or out because mm -hmm. the temperature of the air and the water are the same. Nice. You are in a sensory deprivation tank. It is a drug trip mm -hmm. without drugs. Sure. You know, you've, you've had LSD on your way into the sunset and now you're in whatever it is that takes you into this opioid sense of floating in space. Sure. You have to, it becomes freaky. I find I have to shake my hands until, you know, oh, that's where the water is and my fingers are out and my knuckles are in. Right. Um, but isn't that a nice thing to have? Sure. And by the way, as you float back, you can't miss the takeout. Right. It's just before the bridge. And yeah, and so before we get to uh, already confirming that, you know, that, that my wife's pregnant and the, and the whole thing, <laughs> um, the... Uh, I was um, say this was a way to make another baby. But. Sure, <laughs> yeah. Um, a couple things that I was thinking. One of the things I was thinking about um, that I really—I have no idea if you're going to answer this. Try me. Hollywood Cemetery. I do tours there. Um, the and I've read a million times. I've heard a million people tell me the pyramid is cut from the James River, and the stones are moved up there, and they're all cut to fit. You know, the story is the you know the prisoners built the thing with the free labor um, from the penitentiary. Um, First of all, where are those stones cut from, and how in the hell did they get them up the hill in Hollywood Cemetery? Well, uh, I would, I mean, it is granite, but just because it's granite doesn't mean that it came from the quarries on Belle Isle. And there are other places that might have been easier. Uh, the Philadelphia quarry at the end of Douglasdale, uh, near the water treatment plant, Okay, um, and then there, there were lots of quarries in the old days, um, so people um, didn't haul rock long distance if they could help it. Yeah, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, the stuff is is brutally heavy. Yeah. Uh, two, as you move it, you run the risk of dinging the corners, and as you ding the corners, the quality of the rock uh, is decreased, and so you have to recut it. Sure. Uh, at a, to a smaller size. Um, so lots of labor in moving and shaping. Uh, so you pick a place where you're going to do something and then you find a place you can cut some rock out. <laughs> right, yeah. No, so I, just... can't, I, I don't think that it is fair to say it came from Belle Isle, but it is entirely possible. Uh, what would mitigate against it, uh, well, there are two quarry areas at Belle Isle. One is the pit that has the pond in it. Right. And the other is all the expanse of 
uh, rock more or less below the dam down the center of the river channel. Okay. That's all flat. Why is it flat? Because the rock's been cut out. And during very low water conditions, you know, if the river goes down to say three feet or, you know, um, and during a drought, three feet at the West Ham gauge, uh, you'll see the blocks of rock that were cut out and abandoned. Right. They weren't even worthwhile hauling them out, uh, curbstones and whatnot that are still there. So, to the extent that it came from uh, Belle Isle, it could have been from the quarry there, could have been from uh, any number of places. So I, I, I can't answer your it's, question. It's just amazing. Like, I mean, really, when thinking of that, you know, without, I don't know, without modern technology to think that that much rock was moved for really, you know, I'm sure it meant a lot to them, but frankly, a frivolous, you know, <laughs> for a monument, really, it's like, whoa, that's a lot of effort. But um, well, so think, think about how much effort went into um, building cities without the use of um, uh, petroleum energy sources. Yeah. Um, and without petroleum, it's very difficult to make uh, cement. Sure. Because you can't heat up the limestone so easily in order to make the, the cement powder in order to make concrete. Um, you can't make things, big things, without lots of steel or iron. Again, right. that can use coal, but um, it takes a lot of outside energy. All of the curbstones, all of the, you realize all of yeah. the paving stones used to be made out of granite, and they would ship the stuff at a certain size, and then if you were really ballsy, you'd split it one more time or split it again and get it thinner and thinner and lay it out to make... But a section of, of walkway, of sidewalk, was frightfully expensive. Yeah. It's cheap today. Yeah. So the technology uh, was replaced by labor, and nobody thought of it as all that hard. I mean, it was just typical labor. Sure. And so if you worked stone, it was this kind of work. We look at it today and say, oh my God, do you realize when you were cutting a piece of stone, you had a little drill and a hammer, and it would take you, you know, 45 minutes or an hour to make one little drill hole, sure. and then you'd make another. So in a day, you've made, I don't know, a foot of drill holes, sure. or you've been able to block a foot Maybe. or two so that you can split off a piece of rock. It takes you two days' labor to, to get a block of rock. Right. I think just the canals, I mean, that's a big hole. Yes. It's a gigantic hole. Um, <laughs> not very poetic, but wow, I mean, that's a big hole. Um, and so what are they quarrying that, and is there, like, you know, the Belle Isle quarries, for example, I mean, most people know about that stuff there. I mean, was that... Was there a business, a quarry business there, or was it we're going to build? You know, we need more curbs, so that's where you get them from. Or no, it was um, a regular quarry business. Okay, and all of these were uh, were businesses. Uh, the Bell Isle uh, quarry was in operation prior to the Civil War, but not much. It was post Civil War when that big pit got dug. Okay. That was the big quarry 
time period. How deep is it? 19 feet at its deepest. Okay. But mostly about half that deep. Okay. Um, so if you go along the edge, it does drop off six feet or so, and then there's another ledge and another six-foot drop. Mm -hmm. um, the stones cut out of that were dimension stones um, and curb stones. The rocks in the river were almost exclusively curb stones. So even today, the best curb stones are made out of granite. You make something out of concrete, you rub a bus tire up against it, and it begins to crumble. Right. Uh, you put uh, granite in, and it just scuffs the tires. Right. Granite is really tough stuff. Uh, here on the south side, at the 42nd Street entrance, uh, was the location of Netherwood Quarry, the largest quarry in the area, uh, owned by John Netherwood. And as a tour guide, you might want to take people to Oakwood Cemetery and see yeah. his statue. Okay, yeah. Um, he's there with his hat. He's an English guy, little guy. Um, he sold stone to uh, Washington, D.C., the base of the Army-Navy building there. Um, uh, in New York City, the foundation of several of the, I can't remember, uh, of the big uh, buildings on Wall Street. Uh, the, the granite from Richmond was famous for its strength, its durability, uh, consistency, uh, not its superficial beauty. Well, it was adequate. There were some other places that had more beautiful stone, uh, but Richmond stone was very good for building. Uh, the base of the old John Marshall Hotel here in town, yeah, going to the basement there, that's all done with stone out of uh, Netherwood Quarry. If some grad student were into it, you could go through the old tax records and business records of the old of the old companies and find out exactly where they shipped their stones and where they got used. Right. Uh, I think probably in the future that will happen because we like to know sure. uh, where the the thumbprint of, of Richmond can be found up and down the East Coast. Yeah. Um, and what about the um, uh, William Fushi's mill? All right, Fushi's Mill is a, a, a grist mill located uh, along the James River opposite uh, Maimont, more or less along the what would be the eastern boundary of Maimont, uh, uh, the uh, uh, Hampton Street uh -huh. uh, side. And if you took Hampton Street extended to the river, there's an outfall uh, that drains the canal and also... Uh, is an overflow for the uh, stormwater system. If you go to that outfall, on the western side, the upstream side, uh, there are a series of rocky islands, and they uh, are bifurcated. They lead out like uh, a, uh, think of a, of a duck's bill, the shoreline, a bunch of islands, and then down the middle, the tongue of the duck, so to speak, are some smaller rocks that are the raceway that brought water into the site, uh, of the, into the, the uh, mill wheel, and the mill structure itself 
is evidenced by a more or less uh, pyramidal shape of granite mm -hmm. uh, to which the gristmill uh, stones uh, in which the gristmill stones were located. Um, part of one gristmill uh, stone is still there. Uh, the, obviously the wooden parts have long since gone. Um, the structure has suffered some vandalism. The upper stones have been pitched in and um, it's been spray painted and, and then cleaned and spray painted again. Uh, it is a very interesting piece of history that is not yet protected right. and not yet interpreted and not yet um, a part of our uh, social understanding, our social fabric. Um, this is one of these unsung gems, a very important piece of history, yeah. and it's just there. Yeah. I'm reminded when I see it of uh, an experience that I had when I went over to look at the parks uh, in London along the Thames River. Um, my counterpart there uh, is Jason Debney, who runs a dynamite program uh, of parks. Uh, very successful using volunteers and donations and uh, along with government stuff. He took me down to the Thames River at a site where the old wooden ships used to come in with trade goods. And at low tide, we jumped down onto the hard mud flats and we reached down picking up shards of old pipes and pottery wow. from the 1700s, from the 1600s, from the 1500s. And I that's think amazing. all this stuff should be in museums. And we just pick it up and he says, oh, that's a good, oh, that's a 1700. Now you want, look at this. Right. You know, it's fascinating to have that experience. Uh, and I picked up a piece um, that I had encased in, in gold uh, wire and made into a piece of jewelry for my wife. Um, but I've always felt guilty that I took this piece of what he said, look man, this is trash. This right, is what right. was thrown overboard. It's old trash. But yet, it tells the story of what went on there. Sure. And as he said, you know, it just floats in, it, it gets covered, it gets uncovered by muds and storms, and it is trash. Well, and one of the things, um, one of the things that I was actually hoping that I was going to get be able to uh, access the internet for, it's not that important, but um, uh, a couple people asked questions, like social media questions. Um, and so one of them, uh, I can't remember the, the last, I recognize her little thing on it, um, but Tess was asking, is there a way to get to the mill that would be safe for like a, a toddler where you're not going over like logs and stuff like that? The quick answer is no, Okay. <laughs> and the long answer is thank God. For all the reasons that I, I just said, yeah. um, this is a special place, and I, I want to make sure that it's clear. This is not trash, yeah, yeah. nor is the stuff that I picked up in the Thames River. It is historical artifacts, and the Fushi's Mill uh, is, a, is a really important piece of Richmond's Americana, because it is you had to have a mill every seven or eight miles uh, from farmland. Otherwise, right. the cost of the transport 
was more than the value of the product, the wheat and rye and corn. So, and you couldn't use wheat or rye or corn uh, unless you ground it up, with one exception, and that is you could make whiskey out of it. Yeah, there you go. And right. so whiskey is nothing but concentrated grain, mm -hmm. and it was not necessarily the desired uh, goal of a farmer, but it was how do I make a buck? How do I convert my land into crops and my crops into money? Sure. So uh, the mills needed to be located uh, in many, many places, um, and we have uh, you know, recognized some of them, Staples Mill, Staples Mill Road, um, and Fushi's Mill along the river, one of many, but this one still remains, and its only uh, blessing, its survival, is that it is so difficult to get to. Mm. And of course, as you know, and it's no secret, you come in at the North Bank entrance, you go down to the water's edge, and you follow the water's edge to the outfall. When you come to the Hampton Street outfall, you wade through the water. Um, it is also sometimes that people climb on the railroad trestle and cross over the uh, the outfall that way. Uh, that is illegal and uh, not particularly dangerous, but it is illegal and, and it's a big fine if you get caught. Sure. And on the other side is you either wade through the water or do the other way and you come to Fushi's Mill. And then at Fushi's Mill um, you can continue further up, go all the way to uh, the Boulevard Bridge, or you can go out on those rocks that I mentioned, the lower ducks bill, so to speak, um, and access the, fl the turtle back rocks that define uh, the center of the river. Um, and that's a, an interesting uh, hangout. Yeah. And so um, we are getting to where we've been talking forever and ever, but I'm going to basically go with this last question because we didn't even cover near half any of the stuff that I really wanted to talk about. We'll have to do this again. At another time, well, thank you. Um, the uh, um, you know part of what I wanted to kind of get into is, was the progression of how it went from you know we started talking about um, you know where the Parkins is started and you know no one went out there to the fact that now it's people everywhere and um, one of the things I guess uh, it was from uh, Andrew Frieden actually tweeted at me uh, the question that uh, what. At what point is it, and I can't remember, since I don't have the internet, I can't remember exactly how he worded it, but um, is there a danger of having it too successful was, was basically what he was, you know, getting into, you know, getting people out there to be responsible and caring about the whole thing, but if enough people get out there, eventually, you know, the, I mean, what, you know, yeah, this is the, this is the cute kitten syndrome, oh, I love this kitty so much, so much, and you squeeze it, squeeze it, and kiss it, and then you squeeze right. it to death. Um, and that can happen. The beauty of the park as it's set up right now is that it does not have enough parking places to meet <laughs> the needs of everybody who wants to go there by car. And that is good. That is the bottleneck that allows us to control access. If you go to uh, some of the desirable beaches in uh, New York and uh, New England and Connecticut and whatnot, um, there'll be cars lined up on a highway trying to get in to, the, uh, to these areas, and they have enormous parking lots that 
jam the beaches. It's just nothing but bodies. Um, they are out of control. We have managed uh, by having to require long walks to get to most places, a way to uh, restrict usership. We have limited parking, which is good, and then we have long walkways. And to the extent that we don't have long walkways, we have problems. The problems at the Pony Pasture are a result of too convenient a parking lot. That parking lot should have been pulled back another uh, it should have been made longer and narrower uh, so that people would carry less stuff with them. And if you carry less stuff, then you get a different clientele because certain kinds of people like to bring you know, lots of trash stuff, particularly alcohol. And if they can't bring their big coolers, then they don't go there, which is good because what you want is a certain kind of user one whose impact on the environment is minimal and whose uh, stated appreciation is highest. They're not there just to get schnockered, they're there to groove on the uh, beauty of the environment. The James River Park System, as it's currently managed, has d done that. If you go in at North Bank, it's a hike to get down to the river. Right. If you go into Belle Isle, it's still a quarter mile. Yeah. Um, if you walk on the, if you want to do, oh heavens, the slave trail, the flood wall walk, um, it's all get out of your car and uh, use your feet right. uh, or go by boat. That's our saving grace. And to the extent that we change that, we do it at our own peril. The park is beautiful now because it is an escape and you can love it to death you can bring too many people in and in particular you can bring in machines and I'm very pleased that that aspect has been controlled we don't allow for instance segways and we obviously don't allow motorcycles um, anything with a motor should be uh, restricted the sole exception being electric wheelchairs for obvious reasons uh, but we should not meet, this is going to sound radical, but we should not strive to meet everyone's needs at all times in all places. We should strive instead to have different areas uh, with different levels of accessibility and different kinds of experiences. Right. The experience on the pipeline walkway getting past the rapids and the heron rookery uh, requires some effort. It's not handicapped accessible, nor is it accessible for the elderly, nor is it accessible for young children, Right. nor is it really accessible for pets. But it's a great thing, and right. it would not be improved if you made it accessible. It's not really accessible for any of those things when you get there either. You know, that's the, you know, you could make a really beautiful pathway that would go out there, but then it's like, what are you going to? Why are you here? You and know? then you would have crowds and crowds and crowds of people, and would the experience then be the same? I would right. suggest no. Um, and the same thing is true with all the different parts of the park. Uh, Belle Isle may be jammed with people. You go into Forty Second Street, and you can have the same experience, but not totally alone, but in a much dis more dispersed. Uh, feel alone. Feel. Yeah, feel alone. Um, 
and that is uh, allowing for variations of experience. Those people who want to put in the effort can have a different kind of experience than those people who just want to be a slug. And there's nothing wrong with being a slug. I seem to be heading in that direction myself. <laughs> but it shouldn't be that everything is the same. So, to get back to Phil Riggin's comment, can we love it to death? Of course we can. Andrew and Frieden. Andrew Frieden, excuse me. Andrew's comment. Um, the, the truth is, though, that we seem to be uh, doing an all right job. I don't know whether it is purposeful or simply accidental, whether it is lack of money or purposeful decision management planning. Um, but the effect is the same, and that's good. Yeah. And as we come up with the new river management plans, river development plans, we need to consider making sure that we have areas that are not inundated. Right. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, like I said, I gotta actually get out of here. We've uh, it's, it's been working out. Uh, we'll definitely have to do this again. Next time uh, we come to talk, I would like to talk about uh, slavery, the signs Absolutely. of slavery. I mean, uh, that was one of the things I wanted to really get into the, the slave trail and and your contribution to that. And it well, um, the slave trail was transformative, not only for the park but for the city. We become an entirely different community different society once we recognized the importance of slavery, uh, the slave sales in mm -hmm. the city. That slavery was a major economic driver had been forgotten. We talked yeah. about tobacco, but it is uh, really slavery. Yeah, forgotten, and I think, uh, <laughs> you know, forcefully forgotten, I think, you know. Yes, uh, you're right. You know, forgotten makes it seem, you know, you, you forget where you put your keys. Um, you know, <laughs> it's uh, this was an know, embarrassment, purposely swept under the rug, and it is a it, it formed a festering sore, which, frankly, we have lysed, we have opened to the sun's light of uh, examination, and from that, uh, some of the ugly um, pus of history has been expunged, and we're beginning to heal. People come from other cities in the United States to look at what we are doing because we've said, look what happened here. Right. We can see it all around it, and it was bad. And I didn't do it, but my it did happen back then, and I'm sure. sorry that my great-great-great-great-whatever relatives did it. And when you do that, you heal your society. And if you don't do that, you have a permanent rift. Absolutely. Uh, and just as the Germans have begun to do, to heal, uh, it's taken a generation uh, for them to deal with the awful things that happened to Jewish people. Um, so we are beginning to do that here, admitting to what took place, showing people where it happened, and allowing you to walk on the very uh, footpaths that, that slaves walked. We heal ourselves and become a healthier, uh, happier society. No, and absolutely. it started in the James River Park, and it was started by volunteers. And yeah. don't we? Doesn't that bring the whole thing back to uh, uh, the end of the circle? Yeah. I look forward to talking with you again. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much, Ralph. Thanks. That was it. Um, that's the show. I uh, do want to, before I go, I will say that the questions that I could remember, I do believe that I, I got the the wording of them quite wrong. Um, but the the first 
question uh, was from, and I'm going to massacre this, Tess Shibelo? I'm going to say that. I don't know. I follow her on Tumblr. You should too. Uh, it's at uh, T-E-S-S-H-E-B-A-Y-L-O dot Tumblr.com. Tess Shibelo. Go check it out. Um, I like to follow her. You should. Uh, and also, uh, Andrew NBC 12. He's, he asked the second question. Uh, and, and I thought that was a great question. Personally, I, I was really impressed with that. Um, something I hadn't think of. Um, you know, find out about local weather. Andrew also, you know, a lot of people know Andrew Frieden. Uh, he also tweets about all kinds of other exciting stuff in the city. Um, go do that. And, and also follow them both. Um, and if you've made it this far into the podcast, write a review for me. You know, whether you review this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, where, wherever you're listening to this, write a review. Again, let me know what you think at historyreplaystoday.org. Um, you can make a comment there. You can also check it out uh, on Facebook, Twitter. Uh, I do a lot of uh, non-podcast-related posts at History Replays Today on Facebook and Twitter, Tumblr as well. Um, so, so do that. And make it a great day.